1: Hello and welcome to Government vs the Robots, the fortnightly podcast which takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week we're looking at online people power. Probably everybody listening to this podcast has signed an online petition or shared some political content on Facebook, but how does this affect or does it affect the outcome of national elections and does it make it more likely that a politician can come from nowhere to be president in a matter of months? I'm joined this week by my friend and communications guru, John Coventry, to discuss these issues and plenty more.
0: Uh, John, do you want
1: to introduce yourself? Name- hello,
0: hello. Yes, uh, my name's John Coventry, currently running a uh, crowdfunding platform, GoFundMe, in the UK. Uh, we've got a small operation here, started in January. Previously to that, kind of built the brand of Change.org in the UK, uh, Europe and globally, which became the biggest online petition platform ever. I guess, with like hundreds of millions of users. So uh, yeah, excited to talk about the role of the internet and mobilisation in today and especially tomorrow's politics.
1: Well, one of the things we do, as you just referred to, is talk about tomorrow's politics. And we tend to talk about innovations, kind of technological innovations, and how they might change politics in the future. Now petitions aren't new and I guess social media is not new either and that's a factor here so why did I want to talk to you? Um, I think there's a phenomenon uh, in people power and petitions and such like that's kind of shaking up politics and therefore this phenomenon is going to have an impact in the same way that a technology might. Do you think is it fair to describe what's going on with people power with petitions as a phenomenon?
0: Yes I think it has been. I think the big question is what comes next? I think just stepping back quickly to where you began I think something that I always like to think about in these terms is that the internet is quite new. It's not quite new in terms of people you've been talking to and the kind of innovations you've been talking about here, but in the grand scheme of human history, uh, it is very new and people are just getting used really to the very start of how they're going to use that. And politics, of course, is a huge part of our lives, whether we like it or not. And the internet is clearly going to have a massive impact on how that works. I think in terms of petitions particularly something I've noticed over time as we've talked about petitions is they become they're they're kind of a couple of bits around it first you know they don't work and they don't do anything and then all of a sudden they work too well and the mob has all this power tends to be the fame that comes at you from both sides which I think is probably interesting context um I think on top of that petitions are just like a tiny 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 little thing demonstration of the potential power of the internet to totally turn on its head how we've thought about politics and mobilisation and engagement.
1: Well I am looking forward to getting stuck into that but before we do I want to ask you to cast your mind back to uh, several years ago I suspect and wonder if you can tell me about the first petition you ever signed.
0: God. It was probably the SWP standing in Uxbridge Town Centre, something about firefighters or something back in the 80s when I was about nine, I would imagine. I think that the role of the petition has changed over time. And I think there's certainly more impactful in terms of what you would call that kind of mass collected mobilisation. And I think the one thing the internet has done particularly is if you signed a petition on the street corner kind of back in the day about a local park or speed humps or something you never really knew when that where that went to so the capacity for bringing people together around individual political and social moments getting them to put their name to something and then continually telling them an engaging story over time about that issue is one of the most powerful things about the kind of development of the online petition
1: so if i kind of invite you to step back for a moment from the present and kind of into a slightly more philosophical realm. I, I haven't done any Googling on this particular question, but I suspect there were people in the Middle Ages petitioning the Lord so of the Manor so. yeah. for change. So the, the act of petitioning has been yep. around for a while. So what do you, do you have any thoughts on what it is about petitioning that actually encourages people to feel that their name is worth putting to a piece of paper or to a piece of goatskin.
0: skin? I mean, I think generally there is a, a level of satisfaction that comes with collective action. I think... The, I mean, nowadays, you know, it is obviously the case, you can put your name to anything. I guess back in the Middle Ages, it was harder and or in whatever period in history we're talking about, like it was harder to do that and come together. And if you think about those huge moments in history, for example, are basically all based around this very simple idea that we are a more powerful collective group than we are as individuals, which seems kind of bull obvious now and potentially wasn't then and was kind of groundbreaking, I think now it is still the case. And it's also easier, isn't it, to say something if other people have said something too. And I think again now as we follow through into particularly the era of much more distributed politics, right, people who don't stand on a kind of left and right ideology but stand on the idea of, you know, I believe in this particular issue, which breaks down what we used to call, I think, left and right. I think what you see now is just that at scale and I think the internet and online petitions as you fast forward through history just give you scale and pace and just this rapid growth of people being able to say more stuff more times to more people. So when did you first realise, I'm going to guess, I'm going to take a punt
1: on it not being the 1980s SWP petition, (laughs) when did you first realise
0: the power of the petition? So, when I joined Change.org, um, I was incredibly skeptical. Like, it seemed like a dynamic and exciting company that was doing something interesting in and around that space. I'd worked for NGOs before, fabulous organizations. Uh, a couple of things happened fairly early. Believe it or not, The Voice newspaper was told they couldn't get accreditation to the media center for the 2012 Olympics. Obviously, huge uproar. They start a petition, about five, 10,000 signatures. And again, the action of that becoming such a high-profile story, particularly amongst progressive circles, and that overturned their decision, like, much quicker. Um, Following that, obviously, this week, Jane Austen is on the £10 note, Caroline Criado-Perez of this parish. She um, started a petition... Churchill on Fiverr, like everybody knows, absolutely massive story of which everybody said it was completely pointless and unimportant. But obviously it kind of wasn't said sort of a very huge thing about gender equality at that time. And then another one around that, like, No More Page 3, of this insurmountable 30-year-old campaign to get The Sun to show a little bit more respect for women in their pages that nobody said was winnable. And because of just the mobilization around the petition, not the petition in and of itself, but the energy and the solidarity and the collective action that that showed puts an immense pressure on a kind of brand, a corporate target. And so I think those three between them started to make me think, actually, this isn't just an exciting, new and innovative company. There is a model here that can work to do something interesting. And the way to do that which I guess was kind of new at the time and is the thing I think will be the ongoing innovation. It's just a distributed nature of it. People who traditionally had power and controlled those conversations stand back, let people genuinely who have a story to tell, get stuck in and do their thing. And that will be more impactful over time.
1: That throws up a whole range of questions for me. I mean, not least we're talking about quite a short time frame. The first time, we came across each other. You were presenting, I think, at the Institute for Government for a WonkComs event, which was a yes. policy research communications collaboration. Um, it doesn't feel that long ago, and that all felt current then. Mm. So it's quite a short period of time. But what what do you what have you seen change, if anything, in the way that kind of petitions gain traction in the in the
0: public eye? I think generally we have a much clearer understanding of the social graph, I think Facebook, particularly as a company and as a um, tool, holds an immense amount of power over all of this. I think the question normally comes up, you know, is there petition fatigue? I don't know if there is. I think it has become a slightly hackneyed thing. Like, I think there are still, you know, if it is an issue on which you care about deeply, you will never be fatigued on it. And it has become a very simple and clear and kind of impactful way for people to express their voice. I think there is a definite risk this becomes incredibly one-dimensional. And I think there are... People are becoming smarter and sharper at how they use the internet to drive change. I think the particular advantage of the petition model is it generally, or almost entirely, has to be weighted towards a very specific policy ask, right? do, do people care deeply about the issues they sign petitions on? I I have quite an optimistic I don't think most people share this view. I have a fairly optimistic view of how people engage particularly with something like changed at all, right? I do I think people get an email or they see it on their Facebook feed. They read it, they digest it. They might do that quickly. I don't think they do it blithely. Like I don't think people just sign and say, I've got a thing, I'll sign it. Like I've seen the data. I don't think that is the case. I think people make a value and identity choice when something arrives in their inbox or they see it in their Facebook feed and they might make that choice because they want to be seen to be doing something on that. They might make that choice because their friend has done it But I think also if you look back at politics throughout history, that has also been the case. So I think what we see is the internet holds up a kind of magnifying glass to human behaviour, amplifies it, accelerates it, doesn't necessarily change it in a particularly profound way. And you mentioned in that answer that people have changed the way they engage with content. Mm.
1: How have they changed it?
0: I think people, this might sound fairly glib, so bear with me. So there is this dominant conversation that people are really apathetic and don't care and they don't engage in the world around them, which is quite demonstrably not true, right? So um, people read more stuff. Now, I think it's perfectly possible for one person of any age in their feed daily and just through their journeys around the internet to read... Grazia, The Guardian, the Daily Mail, something a cartoon from Private Eye someone shared, um, shortlist, Unilad and whatever whatever else it might be. So people have a much bigger plurality of media. I think what that does mean is that the Daily Mail is more Daily Mail than it ever has been and the Guardian is more Guardian than it ever has been as people compete for that level of loyalty, so they trust the brand more. But people go less to a trusted title. They go to their trusted sources of friends. Content is shared much more horizontally than it is vertically, I guess, is the, would be one way of putting it. What, does that, that,
1: what does that mean, horizontally rather than vertically? So,
0: so I guess my sense would be that you read something because a friend has shared it with you rather well, than because a news editor or editor has decided that that's an important story. Now, obviously, those things are related, and there is still a big impact of the proper, genuine, the way you edit a news platform or newspaper like that's still important. But I think there is a level of curation in between that now that gets into people's minds and therefore influences their political choices in a way that is less predictable and less controllable.
1: I think less predictable and less controllable definitely too phrases that sum up the current environment totally totally i remember doing social media training a few years back and trying to convince people that twitter was like having your own newspaper and you kind of you you chose your own journalist and you were the editor or the curator um and i feel like there is a kind of path we could go down this conversation around social media around uh The Jane Austen petition, obviously this is when Twitter's just taking off, that kind of horizontal sharing of information comes in. I'm not convinced it's that interesting to go down that path because I think most people who are listening to this understand that social media has changed things. So what I do think might be an interesting path is to ask you to dish dish some dirt on the behaviour of politicians. And by that, I mean presumably in your role at change and perhaps in your life beforehand, you're used to interacting with politicians and I, I suspect that some of the power that comes with the size and scale of some of the change petitions has actually enabled you to see politicians acting differently over time. Is yeah. that
0: fair? Yeah, I think, I think it is fair. I mean, I think there is a argument that politicians are now too responsive, which we might come back to, you know, and they talk like... It would be nice to see a kind of slow policy movement where people were allowed to make decisions about policy and test them with the public and maybe get them wrong without being absolutely destroyed and come back with a better idea and think that through. I think, you know, if we were to say bad stuff about change.org, I think there is a sense that that has, has made the discourse more binary, if that's the right expression, and less... Well, it's less discourse. Like It's just like, this is what we believe and you will answer. And if you don't answer exactly how we want you to, you're a terrible politician and we're going to try and destroy you. Like I don't think that is a helpful democratic intervention particularly. That said, I think one of the most positive ways politicians have engaged with this, and we saw this a lot, um, particularly Labour politicians, largely because they were in opposition, which would make more sense, is they would see um, petitions trending that are relevant to their policy brief or to things they're interested in and just say... We really want to help. So you would end up with someone like um, Laura Corriton, who was running this huge campaign on VAT, on women's sanitary products. And you see politicians queuing up to support her and giving their ability to leverage parliamentary process, which would never have got there without huge public pressure and bringing all of that together. So we were to be incredibly optimistic and excitable about it. The ability for ordinary citizens to lead a, to set the political weather in that way is one of the defining successes of Change Change.org's role in kind of political our political economy, if you like. Like it's just been incredibly good at helping ordinary people set the political weather. At its worst, I guess it just backs politicians into a very reductive corner that make it very hard to respond either privately and smartly or. Take a nuanced position on stuff. I think that's the kind of that's the kind of counterweight to the original point. Just very quickly to go back to the point about changing behavior of politicians. Are there any
1: unsung heroes or particularly smart politicians that you've worked with on campaigns who are working in ways that might surprise people who are a bit cynical about the political process?
0: Yeah, I mean just like stepping back on the emailing researchers thing we got rid of that it changed all when i worked there it just seemed a totally reductive and stupid way like our job then is to bring democratically elected people and companies closer to citizens and so doing something that immediately and intrinsically upsets the person is a really dumb thing to do in my view i think secondly in terms of unsung heroes and politicians I mean, my local MP, Stella Creasy, has always been excellent at championing the voice of particularly young women who are working online on these things, and that's been great. There are a number who's, we did a submission to the APPG, I think it was on uh, digital democracy that was quite interesting. And there was, I'm trying to think of his name now, Halford, Half, Rob Halford. Yeah. Um, he worked on a couple of very local petitions about access to like, train stations and stuff like that in his constituency and really understood the relationship between single issue politics, being a constituency MP and then national level politics. Mm. And I think he really got that understanding and also the ability to go out and use these tools that are free at the point of use to go and kind of change stuff and give people real agency. And I think that's probably more surprising to people, but he was incredibly impressive and stuff like that. Most MPs, I would say, very, very few MPs, particularly around the cross-party, most MPs are starting to use these tools well. I mean, I haven't worked there for a while, so it'd be difficult for me to know most up-to-date ones were. But we generally had a pretty good experience with mps um apart from the ones who emailed us thinking we were 38 degrees asking us (laughs) to stop sending stuff which we weren't sending
1: that's the halfway mark for this week's episode we'll be back just after the advert break This week we're looking at online people power and you were halfway through hearing from John Coventry. OK, so, I mean, I think you've described a picture of change. I think the way that politicians have changed, the way that the power of the petition's changed. Where are things going? Where, mm. if, if, if you say now MPs are almost too responsive, they've tapped into this, they've realised that there's an authenticity to the, the person in the street picking up their issue and taking control of it for themselves... What might be the next frontier
0: for online people power? So I think, yeah, I mean, again, like thinking that petitions were basically a context of massive collapse in pu- of public trust in institutions. So people wanted to do this stuff themselves. Huge forward leap in technology, which meant those tools were available for free to people to use. And the idea that people are engaging in politics less through an ideological lens and more through a single issue lens. Like if we take those three things and like apply that to the future. um, Petitions will still exist. I think they're quite an one-dimensional tool. I think people are understanding organizing more than they ever have. So they, of course, people became, when I left university, it was, I wouldn't say it was trendy, but it was quite popular to become a professional campaigner, right, to join an NGO and understand about how to mobilize people. People are getting that. They understand that quite naturally in their day-to-day lives now. And so I think we will see a much bigger distribution of political campaigning. And I think if you look at the um, last general election and you look at the stuff that I think was the most interesting piece about the whole um, Corbyn campaign, if you like, was not the Corbyn campaign at the centre. It was the idea that people with a loosely connected, broad, broadly connected worldview went and made anti-Tory attack ads, pro-Corbyn, pro-Labour ads and videos and memes and all of that, came to platforms like GoFundMe, crowdfunded advertising budget, and went and like boosted those around Facebook, I think is fascinating. And so the ability of Team Jeremy, if you like, at the center to say, we're not particularly gonna control this message, right? Which obviously has its downsides in terms of abuse. Absolutely. We are not going to be overly precious about who delivers this message and who controls it, I think has incredible impact. Because if we go back to the idea of horizontal sharing rather than vertical communication, what you see is people not saying, oh, this looks like a heavily promoted vote leave or Tory ad. This actually just looks like something my mate has made and now my mate has shared it. Like That is a much more engaging proposition. And I can genuinely see that being the future of British, British political communication, which is much easier if you have a membership of half a million people or whatever than it is if you're the Tories who, you know, the... the I guess the narrative up until then is that, like, you know, the Tories can f- throw millions of pounds at Facebook and they will win every election, which has just proved like shot to bits at the past election.
1: I think that is that is a fascinating point. But I can't help but come back to this question of authenticity. It, it matters more than anything. My thesis that I get on my soapbox and rants about is, you know, if you look at the successful politicians of the last five years, Corbyn, Sturgeon, Farage, Trump. They answer a question straight. Let's leave it at that. There is an authenticity because they're not pretending to be something that they're not, for better or worse. Uh, So I believe hugely that authenticity matters. Some of the most successful Mm change.org campaigns its the authenticity of the the petitioner. But loads of the messages in decentralised political campaign material Mm -hmm. are, to put it politely, inauthentic. Not inauthentic, inaccurate. Yeah. So... How do you deal with, if you've got decentralised messaging, which is exciting because actually it democratises the conversation, but people can spread bullshit?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is totally, that's what, I mean, that is a huge problem. I'm not sure authenticity and accuracy are the same. No, like, I, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm convinced they're not. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The wrong and I think that's the, that is the big question. So you also look at those political leaders who you list, and what you also see is an almost... Sturgeon aside, I think, but like if you take the issue on with like the issue of independence, a fanatical, almost religious conviction and commitment by a fairly sizable group of people to that aim, right? They're all slightly different, right? You know, so people are convinced corbyn is the kind of you know this is real socialism and we are nearly there on the journey to it trump is just i'm not never quite sure what the trump phenomenon is but it's tapping into this particular group of people and their kind of hatred and stress at the world and nick sturgeon is just a, like we're going to take independence to its final conclusion right so all of those pieces they're slightly different but authenticity is definitely key but authenticity is something it seems to me you can be that in the person and then the As as you share that content, as you kind of drive that wider through social and face-to-face interaction and all of that, that authenticity stays. And those pictures that you use, you know, this is a quote from this very authentic person, or this is a quote from the other side, the inauthentic person. They're the bits that play on people's triggers that make them want to share. And once you understand how that social graph works, and once you understand how you can use Facebook and fairly small investments of cash to get that stuff going viral... Then I think you're in a really strong position. I think what is true is that it doesn't none of it works in isolation. You know, you can't just fire out memes and not have a leader who has captured the imagination. Right? You can't just have a leader who's captured the imagination and then not do anything that is authentic and real and interesting on social. So you have to capture. you have to look at all of the channels and bring them all together and that's just kind of like marketing one oh one, right?
1: Um, you touched on GoFundMe. You mentioned people kind of raising sums and using those to spread successful messages. What's the future for GoFundMe? It's a really exciting organisation. When you took that job, I looked at it and thought, well, this is going to be about getting money together to get campaigns together. Mm. Is, is that the right conception? You know, if I was to think, is there a future where there's a political movement that's crowdfunded through GoFundMe? Is that viable?
0: I mean, Gina Miller and the Best for Britain campaign raised four hundred ish thousand pounds on GoFundMe. I think. So, crowdfunding, again, social fundraising, whatever, relatively new, but kind of not. Like, I just don't think people have understood. So, people have either thought, I'm inventing some kind of widget so I can put, try and get some pledges on Kickstarter, or my friend is very sick, we can kind of raise money. I guess where we're not at yet is this idea of, where well, I think they are more in the US particularly, this idea of ingrained peer to peer distribution of capital where people say, I want to do this, back me with some money, and people put in small donations. And I think we have seen, I mean, we've seen a few things. There's an organisation called Level Up, very small, young, dynamic feminist organisation that's raised 15 grand in a week to to run this kind of, you know, there's an organisation in the US called Ultraviolet, this kind of quite very digital first feminist activist organisation. And they've now got basically the seed money that they need to go and see if this organisation will take off. And so there is huge potential on that front. I think with GoFundMe, what we're trying to do is offer a, Blank canvas, right? An incredibly advanced, hugely shareable social fundraising product. And people come and put their mark on that, on how they want to do it. And that's certainly also how it was, it changed it all, right? Here's the tools go and do your thing. You know, we don't want to apply our worldview to that. To that. It's time for you to, kind of, you know, this is a product there that's for you to use. So I think, again, we've only scratched the surface. we come back right to the start. You know, when we say the internet and social is not new, I think it's incredibly new. You know, when we look back in, when my daughter, who's five, looks back now in 50 years, right, you know, and looks at what whatever job she's doing that we can't even predict exists now, looks back at kind of Twitter and look, we used to share everything on Facebook. They'll think we were completely uh, bizarre I think and um, there will be just new ways of it all happening so you know I think we're all just scratching the surface of these things the potential is almost limitless if we get them right I think the concern is how do we keep the conversation at a level that is genuinely engaging and inclusive and you know not as kind of viscerally awful as it can be sometimes now
1: and there's a there's a safety in what you know so when I listen to listen to the trend and think about the trend in a lot of the stuff that you're talking about Am I bonkers to think that there's a world where you kind of cut Westminster out of the loop? So you, you, you have an incredibly engaging, charismatic, authentic, upstart from nowhere, gets a bit of cash together on GoFundMe, manages to get a few friends to start making messages. He's pretty media savvy, and before you know it, You've, you got non, you've got a non you've got non non Westminster yeah. candidate leading the political conversation in this country. How far off is that?
0: Um, I don't know. I think it would be clear to say that I think like there is no way we'd endorse like crowdfunding a dictatorship here, right? Like I think it is important <laughs> the democratic checks and balances that exist. I think it is certainly true that there is a case in which and again, yeah, Macron in France is a fine example, you know, where People are sick of just the existing. Oh, they say this: that people are less engaged with the existing back and forth, and they want to see something new. Right, and we see, that, we see that with Corbyn to an extent, with Sturgeon. Like this is not a new phenomenon. I think it is certainly true that sometime in the next ten or fifteen years, you could see a political leader from a mainstream or new party who comes through much more based on the kind of very new models of social sharing and crowdfunding and that kind of stuff but i think also you know if we are not disappearing up our own technological backsides you know political parties have fundraised small donations from individual members for ever since they've existed so you know again it, it was, would be a of me to say you know we've invented this phenomenon but i certainly think that technology companies have given it a level of scale and public accessibility that it certainly hasn't had before and i think you know if you take the very best of the consumer internet business and you take the very best of what we know about civil society and social change and put those together the benefits overall will be hugely positive for democracy
1: i've got two more questions maybe a half one to find a good note to end on um i want to ask about a bit of the dark side of this um, in the and I'm also going to glance across the Atlantic, and you can decide for yourself whether those two things are related. Um, but it seems to me that because of the possibility of inaccuracy to appear extremely authentic, um, to to have a crowd funded dictatorship, as you put it, is not totally out of this world. What, if anything, do you think we need to be thinking about to ensure that doesn't happen? Are there any? practical steps that you think technology companies or campaigners should be thinking about to try and put a few more new checks and balances in place?
0: I think something that would be really, really positive would be to have a level of political education sounds wrong, but you know, like understanding politics and news and the world around us as part of citizenship in schools. The fake news phenomenon, of course, Social media companies have some culpability in the distribution of that. I am surprised at how little has been said about how individual consumers take their news and understand facts or fiction, and I think that is important for people to learn. Like Facebook gets a lot of stick in this area, but I actually think some of the stuff they've done around these—this is how to spot fake news or this is how to make sure you know you're consuming facts rather than like—I think that stuff is helpful. I think. Also, that it's important to know that there is no absolute truth, right? You know, most of this stuff is just people's versions of the truth. Now, some people are putting bollocks out on social media. That is absolutely true and they should be called out for it and stopped. Um, And I think that comes through debate rather than um, restriction. But I think it starts with the idea of, becoming better at critically evaluating the content that is put in front of us. And again, I'll say this is because this is also new, right? Um, And people don't understand what, you know, that that really shabby looking meme might not be 100% true. And I think we need to be better at spotting it, better at calling it out, and better critical evaluators of the content that's put in front of us. Any regulation, legislation, or is that a step too far? I mean, like, I don't know how you do it, really. We don't do a particularly good job at regulating the kind of national news titles that are out there at the moment. And I'm not sure we should particularly. I think, you know, the British media has always been a kind of bit of a Punch and Judy show, a kind of, you know, I'm trying to think of the right expression, but it's always been, you know, light and shade and all of that. And I think there are problems with it. But I think overall, as free a press as possible is the... uh, is, is, is the best way to go. And again, I think as people grow up with social media, as people who become digital natives, one of a less terrible expression, I think generally we'll become better at evaluating the content that's in front of us.
1: So my last question, to, to find a positive note to end on, you've seen some pretty inspiring people make some pretty inspiring changes in the world. What have they had in common? And
0: what should anybody listening who wants to make changes take from that? Often they've been women, often they've been young women, and often they have just been absolute refusal to be limited by what people told them was possible. And I think that's the key thing. And I think that quite often when I've spoken to people, you know, can we do this and change it? It's like, this is the internet, man. Like, literally anything is possible. There are no limits to what we can achieve. And I think people come to the platforms with a story to tell and a real kind of lived experience. And they've broken down barriers and just gone at it and continually surprised themselves and the world around them with what they've been able to achieve. And I think if you keep things focused and you keep your eyes on the prize and you use your networks and you are relentless and you work hard and you be nice to people, generally people will win out in the end. And I've seen that repeatedly through a number of jobs that I've done both through NGOs, Change the Org, and on to GoFundMe now.
1: John, thanks very much for trekking all the way here to the wilds of North London. Um, I suspect it's been a couple of decades since you last walked up this part of King's Cross. Uh, I don't know if you talked as much that time, Uh, but it's been good to have you here. Uh, And uh, thanks very much for coming. Thanks. So there you have it. Next time your Facebook post gets plenty of likes, boost it by 50 quid and you never know, it might go viral. That's all for this week. But as ever, if you like what you've heard, please like us, share us, or follow us on social media. On Twitter at government vs. the robots, that's g o v t underscore v s robots. On Facebook at government v s or find me on Twitter at tanner jc.
0: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.